Okay, so I'm here today with Edwin Bryant, um, professor at Rutgers University, having spent time at, um, at Harvard, uh, the Department of Hinduism there, uh, author of many books, one of which uh, the popular translation commentary on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and he teaches workshops internationally and worldwide, maintaining a committed uh, yoga practice in the Vaishnava uh, tradition of Bhakti, Bhakti Yoga, is that right? Yes. Yeah, Rutgers okay. is the State University of New Jersey. Of New Jersey, right. Yes. Yeah. But I'm originally British. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm a Brit, uh, I'm, I'm a Brit caught on the wrong side of the, uh, of the pond, perhaps. Yes. We could definitely hear that. Um, so, uh, Edwin, can you just give us a little bit of your background about how you, um, how you got into studying the philosophy of yoga? Well, I, I, I've always been intrigued by Indian, Indian philosophy. And uh, from a very young age, even before I really knew anything about India or even philosophy, so I was one of those characters that hitchhiked over to India in the late 70s and did the Overland Trail before that all closed down. And I spent a number of years living in India, pretty much went native and, um, and entered just deeply into the, into the culture, into the practices and, 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 the, and the sacred texts. Mm. So that's how it began. And then I... Um, Where then I spent living? Where was I living? I was traveling around, mm-hmm. but my base was right. in Vrindavan, which was the, mm-hmm. a place sacred to, to uh, Lord Krishna. Mm-hmm. And I lived in an ashram for a number of years, but then became uh, a little sort of um, dis- dis- disenfranchised because, you know, ashrams are material places. And so there are politics and power struggles and the usual mm-hmm. thing that one hopes to uh, avoid when one goes to an ashram. So I, at a certain point, I, I no longer found my place in the ashram. and I decided I wanted wanted to have autonomy and a, a source of uh, you know a source of uh, a, a place where I could continue my studies and my practices a source you know a place of security and uh, and so I actually wasn't originally planning to to go to go into you know become an academic my initial game plan when I left India was to um, teach English as a, as a as a foreign language in the Middle East. I was really? going to do three months in, in Bahrain and these places and then live in India, yeah. have some the, income to live in yeah. India for the other nine yeah. months. Well, I mean, what was your kind of a background like? Well, what did you study? Did you study academically? Like, did you do a degree or anything like that? Well, I mean, I grew up, my dad was in the foreign office. So we, I, right. ne- I always had this sort of sense of with the British foreign office. Small, so always, background. Yeah, we never had a home and we were always... Um, right. Go, exotic countries, I was, uh, you know, right. was, you know go, going to these places and getting off a plane and some in some amazing place was something I grew up, grew into. So it wasn't sort of, it, 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 it was a natural thing for me to do, to go to India or the Middle East, all of these places. Um, but I had, did one year in Manchester University. Uh-huh. Was, I don't know, 76 perhaps. And, um, but I wasn't at that point interested or ready to study. Mm. I was just sort of treading water. And um, so, I, and then, and then I actually I did it just to, you keep a promise to my dad. He said, you know, look, if you want to go to India, go to India. But yeah, right. if you want my paternal blessings, just at least do one year in university. And I, and and I that suppose, was all he asked, just one year? One, well, was he was, well, obviously, he was, obviously, he was hoping that I would, I would one year and I would right. say. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was skillful means, but it didn't yeah. quite work. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't work out, yeah. Um, well, that's incredible, though. I mean, you know, I'm asking then, how did you get, how did you get the lucidity of style that you have for the, I mean, the, your translation of, of the sutras of Patanjali is how I came to, to know. You're probably the, I think also the, maybe the movie Yoga Unveiled or something like that you're in. 
just a two minute clip in that. Yeah, that's that I had nothing to do yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. But I think I saw you there. But really uh, reading your sutras, I've read a lot of the sutras of Patanjali by different people, and your clarity there is formidable. I mean, I, as a fellow writer or a rubbish one at that, how do you, how do you get how did you get to that level of clarity with it? Is it by personal practice or did you practice stylistically or? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I, yeah. I mean, personal practice of sadhana, the Indian tradition, mm, mm. the Indian tradition that is not just intellectuality for the sake of intellectuality. Clarity comes from also from sattva, and sattva is something that is cultivated and it, with, or, with with lifestyle and and sadhana practices. So therefore, so therefore, it, so therefore, the svadhyaya, the study of sacred texts, is accompanied with with also processes to make the mind. Uh, able to have deep insights about those texts. So, so practice mm, and mm, study mm. go hand in hand. And of course, I lived in India for many years, so I studied the languages. Mm. And then, of course, if you want to go deep into the text, then obviously you have to know, you know, one, one would be well advised to learn languages. And, uh, and finally, you know, that's all I do. I don't do anything. I don't have a television. I don't, um, I don't have much of a, of a social life. So this is my social life. I consider yeah. you know, the time I spend with with great minds like Patanjali and Sri Krishna to be my social life. So, um, so thank you for the compliment, but I, yeah, I, don't, right. I don't feel there's anything I mean, special I, about me. I think the right, text right. themselves and I think the practices create yeah. the conditions, create the conditions for uh, Viveka, for insight. So all I need to do is, is uh, practice more yoga and my style will uh, become less impenetrable. <laughs> As a, a, a kind of academic philosopher, uh, or rather a wayward one. I have a turgid soul. I try and wade through. <laughs> well, I remember actually one of, one of my Sanskrit teachers in, in university who was an academic, not a practitioner. She was a bit of a practitioner. But she said something that stayed with me. She said, if you really want to communicate to people, you'll find a way of communicating to people. Right. Whereas if we're trapped up in our own cleverness and erudition or we simply yeah. want to make a, a good show in a conference with right. a, small, a small group of colleagues, and if, that's tight, if we have that kind of a hankara mm-hmm. or ego, mm-hmm. then, our, mm-hmm. then our language will be impenetrable for mm-hmm. most people. That's really nice. So I think there's yeah. inten- intention mm-hmm. and, and yeah. just desire to serve is also mm-hmm. what, you know, one other factor amongst the others that we mentioned. Yeah, nice. Mm. I, what is your practice of yoga that you mentioned the the uh, the Beka and the clarity and the sadhana? Um, can you say what I mean? I don't, I know you. Well, actually, you do do hatha yoga, don't you? In the Yengar tradition, I do hatha yoga in the Yengar tradition, but but I don't consider it my primary sadhana. Mm-hmm. I, I think of it, it you know, it sattvasizes clearly. It has a, a wonderful sattvasizing effect, and and also it, it you know keeps my body in mm. decent enough shape that I I'm not terribly uncomfortable in it. But my own practice is a Vrinda, I come in the Vrindavan Krishna, the Vraj, Vraj is the name for Vrindavan. Vrindavan is a place in North West India where uh, Lord Krishna uh, spent his childhood pastimes. So the Krishna of devotion, the center in India, the sacred center of the Krishna of devotion, not, not the Krishna of the Gita or the Krishna of the Mahabharata, but the Krishna of devotion, which is baby Krishna, young Krishna. Right. That, that locus is Vrindavan. So I belong to a lineage that that comes out of that tradition, and the sadhanas that are that are primary in in that tradition are japa, which is the which is a chitta It is a Patanjali pra- practice, mm-hmm. but on the, but on the, which Patanjali also also prioritizes in the form of om, 
right? You, you know that this is the sound representation, sound not rep- representation, but sound manifestation of Ishvara. So my tradition takes the arm and sort of um, and sort of um, that arm is just a seed, and seeds produce fruits and trees and and much more embellished things. Mm-hmm. So the Krishna tradition then takes the arm, and and for them the Krishna mantra becomes a, a more sort of fully manifest. It's it's Ishra with form and and qualities mm-hmm. represented in this sort of rather larger mantra. So that's the mantra I chant. It's a Hare Krishna mantra and japa. And then in addition to that, I do puja every morning, the Sri Krishna. And then my whole life is spent teaching, which is my bhakti yoga, which is my offering mm. to Bhagavan. So I try to structure my whole way Can of Can you just clarify to my readers about the, uh, the baby Krishna? It, it's not a different incarnation of the Krishnas, is it? Or just a different uh, kind of face of the life of Krishna? And just maybe a lot of people aren't kind of aware of the different sort of, uh, the kind of uh, qualities of the different Krishnas, let's say. Well, the, you know, when Krishna says in the Gita that, you know, if you read chapter four, when he announces that he's Bhagavan, he's God, mm. and then he says, you know, I descend in the world, Dharma, Samstapanartaya, to establish Dharma. And so that's the sort of Gita of the Maha, that's the Krishna of the adult Krishna. In a sort of, mm-hmm. you know, performing Dharma, God coming down to uh, Dharma Samstapana to establish Dharma, um, you know, uh, uh, and so that's the, the, the sort of formal Krishna, but that's not the Krishna of devotion. I think there's only one temple in India of actual Mahabharata, you know, Bhagavad Gita Krishna. That's not right. the object of adoration. The object yeah. of adoration in the, in the Krishna tradition is baby Krishna or young Krishna, gopi Krishna, sort of up to a you know, up to his youthfulness. At that point, Krishna's not engaging in any dharma or, you know, establishing rightness, righteousness. He's just exchanging love with his devotees. And so, um, so there we see loving, mischievous Krishna just being, just engaging in all these mischievous pl- pranks and loving exchanges, not for himself, obviously, because God is self-satisfied up, up the Rama, but for the pleasure of his devotees. And that mm-hmm. is the, the, and that is, so those stories are so delightful Right. That it's it's those stories which are at the center of Krishna devotion and also at the center of Krishna worship. Krishna temples in India mm. are Radha, Radha Krishna temple, which is Krishna with his consort Radha. So, I mean, if we can, I mean, a lot of my listeners are happy yoga practitioners. So, if we can kind of compare the qualities of devotion to the asanas somehow, are the different subtle shifts in the devoted attitude towards the Krishna say this is your practice of devotion and the subtleties and the nuances of devoting to the, the young child of Krishna is, uh, is like the skill of asanas in a way. The skill of what? Asanas. Of yoga asanas. Perfect. Asanas. asanas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously asana in the classical tradition is simply something you do to your body sort of so you prepare it so you can sit and meditate. It's not a, it's mm-hmm. not a practice unto himself. Guruji Iyengar has made that into a practice unto itself. And well, Krishna Majarya did, and that means Patabi Joyce and, 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 and your mm-hmm. tradition, as well mm-hmm. as Iyengar and so forth. Um, they have taken asana itself as the, the prop for the minds. So, the, 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 so you know, it's interesting because Krishna Macharya is sort of balancing these two types of Worlds. There's the world of asana, where you you know you fix your mind on the asana. You know mm-hmm. you know you, you settle the vrittis in the pose, 
but he also has this whole other Vaishnava side, so did Guruji Ayanga. And it's quite fascinating. Uh, and Guruji Ayanga didn't share that very much. No. And Joyce. <laughs> but what Tsabi Joyce was coming from a different lineage. He's coming from the mm-hmm. later lineage. Yeah. Which is, which is not quite as, as dualistically theistic and therefore not quite as intensely theistic as the, uh, the Vaishnava traditions. I mean, we'd probably need some time to sort of unpack that. Mm-hmm. But um, so the, the, the goal of bhakti is actually love of God. It's not the attainment of, a, of an experience of pure consciousness. That's there. That's sort of picked that up on the way. Right. But it's not the actual grand finale goal. So, but it, whereas in the in the Yoga Sutra derived traditions, the Naroda mm-hmm. traditions, the goal yeah. is you know sarupe vastanam. It's an experience of of pure of pure consciousness. So, if I was going to question you on the love of God as to if you could qualify that any further as an experience, is it not pure consciousness? Is uh, is pure consciousness? And obviously, you separated the two: love of God and pure consciousness as different things. How would you qualify? Well, love is a state of mind. So therefore, right. love isn't taking place. Consciousness is pervading the mind and therefore aware of the mind. So any kind of a relationship with God requires a mind and a body. It, 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 it requires instrumentations, uh, instruments of, of perception and experience. And so in the prakritic world, we have our prakritic mind and com- com- prakritic body and prakritic senses. And we use those to serve and think of God and love God and develop all those qualities. But in the post-mortem liberated state, in the Vaishnava traditions, we then get a different set of instruments made of, of Brahman, Saguna Brahman, like condensed Brahman. Um, so the, the, the Atman is just pure conscious, like a battery. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if we put that together, then the, you know, the Atman can either be in a prakritic body or it can either be in its, in its Kevalya, in its autonomous alone state, just in its own nature, or it can be in a divine body which it, uh, with um, mind and body, which it uses to have personal relationship with God. These are the sort of three, there's other options as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are other options. There's Kashmir Shaivism, there's Shakta traditions, which Hatha Yoga is actually coming out of. But just briefly, love of God, to answer the question, is something which, it, it, which nothing goes on in consciousness. Consciousness has no in or out. It is just like light. Uh, it, it just is light, but it can, lum- it can illuminate things, coverings around it. So consciousness illuminates the mind and love of God is taking place in the mind. So the, the bhaktas, the devotees are not interested in just pure consciousness. They want to have that. And ultimately, and ultimately why? It's because it's more blissful. Mm. But isn't it always dualistic? I mean, in the, the so kind of Patanjali... Yes. It's du- with Patanjali, the, the, always is the wish, or even a lot of times the Gita, the wish is to escape, is it, escape samsara and suffering. But essentially... With this idea, I don't know, wouldn't you want to stay in it to consistently appreciate this love of God? You know, you don't want to stay in it. You, while you're in it, you want to use your, your instrumentations to love God, but you want to get out of it. And then when you get out of it, you don't just want to, for the Vaishnavas, pure consciousness is just a halfway house, right? Once you, once you become liberated, just, just experiencing your own consciousness is a halfway house. They want to go further into the divine realm uh-huh. of Brahman and, and receive a, a Brahman body, another a body made of pure consciousness. <laughs> okay. So therefore, they, they want to get another body, a, you know, a, 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 right. a body which, it, you know, the, and then it gets a bit, you know, then it gets very interesting, the theology. 
What's the relationship with the divine body with, um, and the Atman? Somehow or other, they merge. The thing, the thing is, I think I kind of feel you're very unusual because you're a respected academic, but you, you also talk on, on a quite a different level that you don't usually hear in academia as a practitioner as well. I mean, my next question is the most intriguing one. Like how do you reconcile the two worlds? And how, do you find them different? And if so, how? That's sort of a broad question, I know. Well, obviously, we have, there is dharma for different situations. So everybody has multiple dharmas. So now you're doing your dharma as a talk show host. <laughs> no doubt you have a dharma. You have a different dharma when you're with your parents. You have a different yeah, dharma yeah. when you're with your what you know your friends and and so on and so forth. So the dharma of colleague is I wear a, I wear an academic hat. So if I go to conferences, I don't speak like this. So right. I then speak like an academic, and I I mean I don't anymore. I don't need to because it doesn't interest me. That you know I, I'm much more interested in my practice these days. But in the when I as a as a younger academic, yes, I would uh, I would go to conferences and do try to find write papers on, but always on things that were re- related to my ultimate um, to my ultimate sort of uh, theology. I would all my work was actually connected in some way to um, to what I was deeply interested in. But you just articulated mm. in an academic fashion. Hmm. Yes. So can you broach? Yes, you can broach both worlds, but I'm speaking to you because you're a yogi. So I'm using, you know, just like I'm speaking to you in English, whereas if I was doing an interview in Italian, I would speak Italian. So I'm speaking to you more as a fellow yogi. uh, But whereas in academe, um, one would... Now, in terms of the difference between an academic relationship with the material... And a practitioner one, the practitioner mm-hmm. sees these texts as, as sources of guidance and truth, guidance for one's yeah. spiritual journey. It's not so much concerned about whether they're historically real, about, about whether, you know, Krishna, did he, you know, did he really, was he really born in 3000 BC? You know, so therefore, it's the, the, the uh, relationship is, is to, get, to experience the goals of yoga. In, uh, in bhakti, it's love. And in classical Patanjali, it's pure consciousness or whatever that goal might be. But the academic approach, you're not interested in that at all. You're not, um, you, 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 in fact, most academics don't believe in any of it. And so therefore, for them, it's all a human construct. And if it's a human construct, then they're interested in, well, who constructed it? And why was it constructed? And what are the power dynamics? And it's more of a Marxist Foucault Foucault-type uh, uh, you know, engagement with the tradition. You know, what, what, who were the Brahmins? Why are they writing the stuff? What is their yeah. real agenda? It seems strange to even kind of involve yourself in it if there's no real kind of wish to use the text. No? I always find that interest something that I could never do, but there are intellectuals. Mm. Right. And they identify with the intellect mm. and they simply take pleasure in enjoying intellectuality for the sake of intellectuality. It's a type of, it's a type of hankara. It's a type of, of ident- identity and it's a type of way of being in the world. But you must feel a bit separate from that. When you yeah, I always felt like yeah. I always felt a, a fish out of water. No question about mm. that. Yeah, yeah. And I struggled with it, uh, especially when I was younger. Mm. And I always felt like a, uh, a closet yogi, and I always felt, frankly, um, kind of insecure. Like I didn't really belong, and you know, like I was going to get outed or busted. Because when I started, there were no practitioners in academia. Now there's a lot more. Yeah, yeah. And of course, now I'm, you know, tenured and I'm 62. I'm, I, I do whatever I want. Now I, you know, I, I could even walk around with sacred clay. In fact, I probably will at some point just to, just to, just to rock the boat a bit. Yeah. Um, what practice um, text do you refer to the most? 
Well, my canonical text of my own practice is the um, Bhagavata Purana. Right. It's the central canonical text for the Vrindavan Krishna tradition. So I've translated the 10th book and I've translated a, a sequel to, Bhakti, to uh, Patanjali, by the way, and it's called Bhakti Yoga. It's a sequel. So, um, so though, that's my own personal kind of uh, Svadhyaya text. But, uh, in, but in terms of the, you know, the yoga community, the, I, I would say the canonical text ought to be, or are, um, the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. Do you think you need to know the text or the philosophy of it to practice yoga? I mean, whether it's back to yoga or has yoga or, you know, something that ostensibly doesn't need philosophical knowledge. No, the practice has its own potency and it has its own power mm, 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 and, it, mm. and, it, and it satisfies the body and it creates a, and it, it favors, you know, it, it, it works towards increasing the sattva components of the mind. So even if one has no philosophical uh, relationship with the Indian moksha, philosophical traditions, just doing, for example, asana or other types of practices, yeah, will make the mind sattvic. But one of the side effects, one of the qualities of sattva is interest in knowledge, is the sort of like, then the mind starts to become more inquisitive. Um, mm. But, you know, not everyone is an intellectual, not everyone is, uh, you know, so uh, if the question is, is it, it, I mean, certainly Patanjali mandates it, in the Kriya Yoga, you know, Svadhyaya, the second word in the chapter, mm. and it's also in yeah. the Niyamas. So he, he places it as, a, as one of the elements of practice itself. But does one actually need to be philosophically sophisticated? Of course not. I mean, look at the bhakti traditions of the gopis. They, could, they, they, they were illiterate. Mm, mm, mm. And in fact, most, most uh, yogis in India historically, and including the ones you see wandering around today in the loincloths and the dreadlocks, most of them are actually literate. And so, and certainly they would have been before the printing press in India. And so therefore they would be receiving the knowledge, not so much through, remember study would have been oral transmission. But if your question is, can one do yoga with absolutely no connection whatsoever? Of course one can. And one will get, uh, and one will get the, 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 the sadhana will work its own magic. And at a point, do you think study is actually counterproductive? In the kind of further sort of separation of ego and, you know. Um. Well, it doesn't have to be. because We could say that about anything. You could say that about Hatha Yoga. You become a, virtu a virtuoso yogi and do all those fancy poses, then that can, you know, so anything at all can become yeah. a sense of ego. Um, and so obviously learning can. It can, it can make one proud and one be starts to uh, become, you know, the ego become, of course, but that goes with the ability to chant kirtan or the ability to do hatha yoga or, or anything, anything mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. just part of the work is to always be on guard against those types of clashes. What would that, yeah. What would that work look like though? Because one can make kind of strong effort at things, but then inevitably kind of get hoisted by one's own batard, you know, kind of like by the effort itself kind of entraps you. So yeah. how do you kind of, Yoga is, with... a, yoga is a 24-hour um, kind mm, of working mm. in the mind. Just like mm. when you do asana, you are working your body. You're doing real mm. asana. You're working every single muscle in all of those poses. You are working. You're not just flopping into a pose. So in the same way, real yoga, which is mind, but yoga is taking place in the mind, whether it's bhakti yoga, where you're trying to keep your beloved Bhagavan in the mind, whether it's jnana yoga, where you're trying to keep the uh, Upanishadic teachings in the mind, what to speak of Patanjali and Niroda uh, yoga, where you have to keep the Niroda samskara controlling the, the mind, it is hard work. 
There is no magic wand. There is no, uh, and any, uh, you know, anyone that's not, is not having an experience of hard work is probably not doing real yoga. <laughs> so there is no magic formula. And, you know, beware of anyone peddling magic formulas. Um, yeah, yeah. Yoga is a, is a state of constant mindfulness of one form of another, whether it's, again, a Nirodha mindfulness or Jnana Yoga mindfulness or Bhakti, keeping Bhagavan in the mind. It's work. How... Would you, I know this sounds a really silly question probably to you. People often say to me, well, this, I mean, I've done it for a year or two, the yoga. Um, it's not making me feel any happier. Um, and I'm always a bit stumped because I never kind of assumed that yoga would necessarily make me immediately happy. Um, how, how would you answer that? Well, when, when they're talking about yoga, what are they talking about? Asana? Yeah, they've been doing an asana practice. Maybe they've done a little bit of, you know, reading a, you know, around or, you know, here and there, you know. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, what, what can one say? I mean, surely this makes the body a better place to inhabit. If you're doing asana, then there's no, then surely the body is feeling a little bit, you're, you know, it's a little bit less tight. It's a little bit, you know, it's, it's more relaxed, it make, more stretched. Sometimes it's just full of pain. It's a kind of, when you stretch the body, then they kind of feel like, you know, it's causing them suffering, the stretching and, you know. And every day doing it, and you know, I think, well, I need to go back to normal life again, and you know, it's a bit more comfortable and ostensibly, seemingly happier. And it's yeah. a tough one to answer. Um, you know, if they are, if if I mean, I I think you know, yoga is for people that want to change. You know, yoga mm. yoga is triggered by suffering. Right. So you have by to know that you're in suffering. It's the first noble truth of Buddhism. And if you're mm. not suffering, mm. if you don't think you're suffering, then why would you take to a yogic practice in the first place. But, um, in fact, yoga, the definition of yoga is that which takes one beyond suffering. That's the definition. The Gita, Gita has three different definitions. One of them is, takes you beyond suffering. You know, other traditions define it that way. So if one is not, if one's not being freed of suffering, then, I mean, the yogis would say they're not doing yoga. They're not doing proper yoga. They're at the, they're at it, the mind, the, the mental attitude. I mean, suffering's in the mind. So somehow there's something wrong with the attitude with which one is approaching yoga. One is expecting, perhaps one is expecting something that it's not designed to deliver. So, um, but the proper yoga makes the mind sattvic. And one of the qualities of sattva is happiness. In the Gita, they, they, you know, sattva has certain qualities like detachment, like we already mentioned one, you know, interest in learning, mm-hmm. uh, interest in truth. Uh, but, not, but one of the primary qualities of sattva is happiness. And so if one is doing yoga, one is becoming a little bit. And to that little bit, one should be experiencing happiness. And if that's not happen, happening, I don't know what you say. Uh, I would just say, well, you know, then there must, there's either there's something wrong with the way you're doing yoga or yoga's not for you. You don't need yoga. You're already happy. You already feel, you already believe you are happy. Come yeah, back, yeah, come yeah. back, come back if you ever, <laughs> if, if, if that belief ever leaves you. <laughs> Um, okay, so take it that they realize that there might be something to be improved. Um, and, and often another question is, uh, where would I, you know, where do I start um, in the yoga text? What, what, or, and how do I start? You know, I've often also had the uh, conversation on Monday morning. I've read all of the Bhagavad Gita over the weekend or all of the yoga sutras. Um, kind of then left to say, okay, how was it? You know, <laughs> I mean, um, how... How do you start in referring to these texts, uh, and which way, and how would you, would you start? 
Well, I mean, obviously, if you're reading it, uh, if you're reading a book, I mean, we did a workshop over the weekend. That's fair enough. We did a bunch of, but, you know, in, my intention is that in that is just to give people a glimpse at the, at, at, at the Gita and so that they develop some taste and they get something out of that so that they can then go and study it themselves. But a real Svajaya practice, you're not rushing through, you know, it's not like reading a newspaper, you're just charging oh, through it. Yeah, That's yeah. a very Rajasic way of studying. Yeah, right. like just you know, take two or three verses and read and read and read and, and then go deeply into them and, and contemplate them and examine them, apply logic to them. This is the Vedanta process. Mm. Shravanam, you hear, then Manana, you reflect on it, and Nididhyasana, you contemplate on them, and then you practice them. And part of that practice involves tapas, involves, you know, and there's no yoga without control, trying some kind of discipline and control of desires. That's not, that's not yoga if it doesn't involve that. Mm. And so therefore that can be hard. It's like if somebody's addicted to cigarettes. I remember when I was addicted to cigarettes as a kid, it was probably the hardest thing I had to do was break that habit. So that was suffering. So you could say in the beginning it's suffering, but you have to be, you realize I'm suffering already deeply, okay, and I go right. through this other sort of transitional period of suffering to break that, the patterns of the real suffering, and then you come to a plateau beyond. So it, it, that may also be the case, that people are, that yoga's challenging, physical yoga's challenging the way the muscles are used to being in the body. Mental yoga is challenging some of our views of life and desire and the rest of it. And so in the beginning, it, it can appear to be suffering. And the only reason to do it then is to re- is recognize I want to change and I'm ready to consider what the great sages and the saints for th- thousands of years or, you know, two, three millennia, these, you know, the, not just in India, but everywhere in the world, these mystical traditions are talking about this, you know, greener pasture on the other side of, yeah. of, of embodied existence. And you're willing to consider, you know, give that a chance, give that a, give that a, you know, you know, consider that as a, as a uh, as a goal to aspire, a, a, a reasonable goal to aspire for. Mm. Mm. So, you, so you, I mean, you can literally just pick up a text. You don't need any background, any further history of it, or anything yeah. like that. You do. Well, I mean, in the Gita, you can do that. I mean, Patanjali, when he writes the Yoga Sutras, he's assuming everybody has already read the the more normative corpus. Of yeah, you know, so. like you punish us in the Vedas, mm-hmm. but yes, you can. Mm. You know, you'll struggle. You won't. You know, you, you, you. But but you just keep going. It's like asana. If you walk into the middle of an asana class, you can just join in, um, and you'll get something out of it. But if you yeah. keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, then you'll start to see the connection between the poses. You'll start to, you know, be familiar with the language. You'll start to really get some benefits. So. Yes, you can start. It's it's a it's a, you know spiritual texts are spiritual. You can jump in anywhere. But um, but the, but 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 yoga is about abhyasa, doing things in a regular daily way, yeah. and not frivolous, frivolously. If one really wants to get benefits, it's, it's no point just picking up a book for a couple of days and then moving on to something else. That's rajas. Right. So you, 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 a, a constant daily repeated abhyasa, a repetitive study of just one or two texts, the Gita and the Yoga Sutras, that's fine. That's all you really need for a good, a good long time. I think that's, that's very liberating to hear and, and, and very encouraging, I think, for a lot of people who kind of feel overwhelmed by the text, you know. Um, I mean, how would you approach them? Um, I've obviously kind of wanted to know the mind. Um, do you need 
do you need to have faith in the text or will they just render that to you? They'll no. render that. Right. I mean, you have to have enough faith or at least respect. You have to have enough sort of at least, I would say, reason, reasonableness to, to think, well, if something's been around this long, but 2,000 years, and accepted by the greatest intellectual minds of India, it must have something going for it. So that seems to be a reasonable uh, starting premise. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, uh, um, but nothing more than that. You know, I, I would advise people to bracket issues of belief and disbelief and, you know, historicality and you know, sort of bracket scholasticism in a sense, not, not jettison it, but just let the text tell their own story in their own right. terms, say what they want to say, just allow those words to enter the mind and, 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 and then work whatever effect they're going to work in the mind. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. asana does to the body. You don't have to understand asana. If you follow a good teacher and you put pressure down on the whatever it is on the inside of, of the foot, when the te- you know, whether you understand this sort of biology yeah. or the f- physics behind it or the physiology behind it, it will have an effect. Right. It's the same with Svadhyaya and mantra is the same and Ishvara Pranidhana, which Bhakti is the same. What do you, I mean, I, this is an intriguing question, and I know, I know it's probably not an easy one. What do you envisage the obstacles of a Westerner coming to these texts are? Well, the modern, can you kind of point out any kind of traps that we might kind of face in coming to these texts? Well, I would say that, well, just off the top of my head, I can think of two distinct sorts of traps. The first is all of the texts are, every single one of them, Buddhist chain, all of the Hindu traditions, including right-handed tantra, maybe left-handed is a different story. All, every single one of them, however so much they, however they may disagree, uh, agree that desire is, the, is really the cause of our suffering and the cause of our bondage. That means desire for the body-mind satisfaction, desire for the Atman is a different thing. And therefore, tapas and vairagya and these kinds of uh, words denoting discipline are going to be stressed throughout. We just read the second chapter of the Gita. At the end of, you know, around verse 50 or between 50 and 60, Arjuna says to Krishna, how do you identify a self, you know, stittadhi, a self-realized soul, an enlightened soul? And then Krishna has 10, 12, 15 verses in answer. And every single verse, using, you know, he's saying the same thing in different words. He has to control desires, control desires, be free of desires. So growing up in a consumer culture, you know, you know, capitalism by its, by its very nature, you know, can only function by, by a capitalist economy needs to create desires where desires were mm. not even there in the first place. So growing up in a consumer culture, we, 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 you know, our economy, our political systems encourage us to consume. You know, success in life is the ability to have resources to consume. When we confront this opposing message that consumption is really what's our, our enemy, to use the language of Krishna, in the sense that it causes, actually causes our suffering, that's a massive cognitive dissonance. That's a major block. Yeah. And the only way around that is to, at least, first of all, be provided that information that according to you know, moksha traditions, desire causes suffering, and then encourage people to be mindful of when they do engage in, des- in their desires, whether they really do satisfy or not. So that's the first block. And then I think, especially in England, you know, there's the colonial, there is now with all of this sort of, uh, you, know, you know, with all the sort of, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter. Now is a good moment to start um, breaking these sorts of attitudes down. But there is, and certainly when I went to school in England, 
a kind of a, a you know, post-colonial racist bias against Indian culture. I mean, I, when I grew up, Indians were not, you know, they were not uh, seen as socially, um, you know, I mean, they were sort of looked down upon after, uh, in many instances, mm. 50s, 60s, 70s. All of that's changing, of course, now. Uh, and I haven't been in, in, I haven't really lived in England for a very long time. But there may also be these kinds of attitudes, um, resistance to deities coming from the Abrahamic, the Old Testament. So these are kind of inherited Western cultural samskaras, you know, kind of still uh, lingering sort of, uh, you know, unknown and even good people. And, you know, like these, these um, this innocent, what do they call them? Microaggressions. These kind of attitudes that still linger about Indian culture. So, th- so those are two possible sources of resistance. And I'm sure there's lots more if we had time we could talk about. I guess you have to have kind of faith to believe that desire might not work in a way. So that's kind of an attitude of, you might have to have a little faith and try it. Well, or, or even if you didn't, if, if you were willing to say, well, okay, why are these people, why have these great thinkers, uh, you know, been saying this for 2000 years? I don't have faith in it, but let me just observe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that mindfulness is kind of an empirical practice. Mm. You start paying attention and you think, okay, this maybe it's never occurred to you that what I think of as desire, actually, I'm always frustrated. I mean, it, it doesn't last. The desire doesn't last. I mean, I have my Kodak moment, but then it's gone. And then, I, then I'm thrust into a state of I've lost it, or, and then I have to do something else or repeat it or, and start mm. paying attention. I think that's the place to start. Mm. If one is just willing to consider this proposal... And, and, you know, one can just throw it away immediately and block it and say, oh, I'm not even going to, you know, I'm, that's ridiculous. But if one is, you know, has a little bit of, uh, wants to give some due diligence to, you know, Indian philosophy, then the place to start would be, okay, let me pay attention next time I go to the pub with my mates or whatever it is. And, you know, let me, let me, let me observe the whole evening and then check in the whole time. Am I really, this is, is this the bliss I seek? It's just giving me the deep level of happiness that my heart really seeks. Yeah. Start, yeah. start, start being witnessing. I think we also but, kind of lack a practical application of the text, you know. It's like yoga and text and study is one thing, and then, you know, kind of what we do outside is, is another thing. But, you know, it's kind of a particular interest to make the text really practical because when you read the Bhagavad Gita or some, you know, or the sutras, you realize that there's nothing changed from that time to this time, that they're dealing with the very same issues. Of course. I mean, because the mind is the mind. Mm, mm, the mm. culture may change, but the human mind and human consciousness, that doesn't change. And therefore, if you're, de- if you're providing information, if you're providing uh, knowledge pertaining to that which doesn't change, the Atman, and also the mind, I mean, you know, in, in some ways the mind is different. We have different ideologies and beliefs now, but the, the mind as a, as, a, as a thinking entity and especially the mind in its deep level, you know, the klishta mind, you know, the desires mm. and the versions, the, the, ob- the objects of desire may change, but the raw mm. phenomenon of desire and the raw phenomenon of ego and the raw phenomenon of, of it, that doesn't change. And therefore, mm. any knowledge system that addresses those deep level non-changing things is a perennial tradition. It's going to be universal. It's going to be um, uh, applicable to all people at all times. And certainly any religion presents itself as that. Christianity, mm-hmm. Buddhism, and certainly so does yoga. With something like the Bhagavad Gita, is there the ability to kind of get lost in, in different interpretations? I mean, you translated the sutras, in, to my mind, beautifully. Is there different ways to read the same 
kind of sutra or different ways to read the not, same not the stanzas. Sutra. Not the sutra, because the hmm. commentarial tradition is quite consistent. You know, the later commentators don't disagree with previous commentators. But that's a massive issue in the Bhagavad Gita uh, tradition, yeah. because that's p- part of the Vedanta uh, uh, school of thoughts. And Vedanta differs massively between the non-dualists and the dualists and the, um, you know, is the goal of life pure... Look, touching on just connecting to what we said before, is the goal of life pure consciousness or is it an eternal relationship with God between two individuals. Now, that's a pretty mm. major difference. Is the world real or is it actually just, a, just a, a, a superimposition, a mirage? That's a pretty big difference. You know, is the soul an individual or is it a, a, an infinite, omnipresent entity? That's a pretty big difference. And is Brahman ultimately impersonal or is Brahman ultimately a personal being? That's a pretty big difference. So therefore, the Vedanta schools differ in the most essential metaphysical yeah. ingredients known to human thought. And you find that difference in the Gita, but not in the sutras. But also in the sutras, there seems to be a possible reading of an Advaita kind of a perspective of the sutras and also a dualistic perspective. Not in the tradition, no. That may be modern no. day Advaitins are trying right. to, might want to appropriate it nowadays because it's become a canonical text. But there, yeah. there's, no, there's no Advaita. Even Shankara, supposedly, I mean, scholars will, will quibble about whether it's the real Shankara or not, but he wrote a commentary. Or someone uh, under the uh, name of Shankara, there's no Advaita in that at all. He's a dualist in that. Mm-hmm. And it's so remarkable that one scholar, Paul Hacker, says, well, this must have been Shankara before he became an Advaita. <laughs> so there is no Advaita in the, in the pre-modern commentarial tradition. Now, if, you, if you're suggesting that modern commentators are Advaitasizing it, well, yes, and the Buddhists are Buddhistizing it, and even though that Yoga Sutras, you know, uh, uh, rejects Buddhism in the fourth chapter. But yes, people uh, nowadays are appropriating the sutras because it's become a commodified text. Mm. And, and, uh, but, um, but, if, but if the question is in the tradition, there's no, there is a pretty consistent, I mean, there's some small disagreements, but nothing of meta- metaphysical si- significance. Hmm. Dualistic. Yeah. It's dualistic, pluralistic, realistic, yes. Not Advaita Vedanta. So ultimately, the aim is to believe in God through reading the Yoga Sutras. Well, the ultimate goal of, of yoga actually isn't that. Even though Ishva Pranidhana is there, the ultimate goal of yoga is to experience of your own Svatrupa, your, your uh, nature of pure consciousness. Ishva Pranidhana is there, but it's not the goal. In, in Bhakti, it's the goal. Yeah, but in the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, Ishwar is there because he's you know you can use him as a prop for the mind, you fix the mind on on the mantra or you know Om on the Vachika, and Ishwar can bestow samadhi sidhir, can bestow samadhi on you. But that's not the goal though. The ultimate goal of Patanjali and Yoga is outlined right in the third verse. What happens when you do Chittavriti Narodha Tadakim Bhavati? Mm. What happens then? Drashtu Sarupe Vastanam. The sea abides in its own nature, not abides in a loving relationship with God. That's bhakti. Mm. So the goal of bhakti is that love of God, for sure. And that's the goal in the Gita and in the Vaishnava traditions, in the Krishnamacharya tradition, in the Iyengar tradition. Not Patabi Joyce. Patabi Joyce was an Advaitin. So for him, the goal is infinite, impersonal, pure consciousness in the Advaita. That was a nice explanation. I'm... I'm not actually, for your information, I'm not actually this stupid. I'm just uh, playing devil's advocate. I understood this completely. You're, uh, you're doing it for your audience. You're, yeah, uh, well, you know. If, yeah. 
Are you, yeah, of course, I understand. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to make you speak. Um, I know a lot less than you, but I know a little bit. You're, being, you're not stupid at all. You're being very expert in, uh, <laughs> in getting me to say the things that you, that you want thank your you. audience to, you. uh, to hear. Do you, um, obviously in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, there's quite a lot of mention of food. Um, my, um, my students, my readership is very interested in doing a very physical practice about diet. Uh, people are very concerned in the modern day about diet. It is uh, the one choice we have on a consumer level and how we put our money um, towards our diet affects greatly the impact on society, on animals, etc. Et uh, do you have any recommendations on diet? And Krishna calls it uh, the sacred digestive fire. Um, it's, you know, it's yeah, right there's, three, the there's, three, of, there's three verses in, uh, I can't remember the chapter, it's either 14 or 17, um, where Krishna is dealing with the three gunas. And so he speaks about the, you know, food in the mode of sattva, food in the mode of rajas, and food in the mode of tamas. So food in the mode of, of sattva is healthy, it's pure, it's um, obviously vegetarian. Um, the prana, you know, he, uh, the words he uses, are, he actually says snigda, which means oily, which is a bit odd. But anyway, right. it, it, yeah, um, so that would be, it's fairly obvious, you know, vegetables and, and, and plants. Rajasic yeah. food would be very spicy, very, anything very. So very salty, very sour, very spicy. Yeah. And that appeals to a rajasic person who is always seeking stimulation. And to the tamasic food that's rotten, that means meat, you know, dead, it's rotten, it, you, know, it, it, you know, it's uh, putrid. And you may say, well, that, you know, who was going to eat dead, you know, dead, rotten, putrid in, in food? Well, meat eaters eat that because it's dead, it's rotten, it's, it's only doesn't appear rotten because it's pumped full of chemicals. Uh, and that, of course, tamasic food causes injury to others and it causes injuries to oneself. It harms mm. one's health. And it also creates uh, karma. If we're eating a meat diet, then we have to take the karma of the, whatever that animal suffered, then we have to take that, our, our respective portion of that. So therefore, oh, the, the tamasic food is, sorry, is, 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 is destructive for the uh, person. Uh, what to speak of the animal? I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, not at all. I just want to, so it's, it's specific that we have to be vegetarian. To, yes. Uh, to get the benefit that's just out. It's that. such an utter given. Yeah, it's a completely right. not a given vegetarianism. And of course, now what we have to, the challenge we have to face, face that the ancient Indians didn't have to face is, is veganism because they allowed the cows to roam yeah. and they, took, they just took the milk and, you know, you have to take the milk from the cow because uh, otherwise it is, you know, it, it, it suffers and the calves can't drink all the milk. So, it, 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 you, you know, it's like, it's like if you need to go to the toilet, you know, the, your bladders are bursting. So there's nothing wrong with that. And of course, the Indian, you know, instead of the Krishna culture, I mean, the names of Krishna, Gopala, Govinda, that's, you know, the cow. But now, because of the way our cows are treated, we now have to face an issue that the ancient Indians didn't have to face. Like when I went to India, and still today, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. cows would live in the home. There would be a home and they would have, a, you know, you'd enter in the home, there'd be a little hallway and the cow would live there. And then it would go out in the day and wander about and it'd come home for dinner at night. Literally, like, so lovely. Um, such a lovely thing. And now, of course, the cows in India are, you know, they're still, no one's allowed to kill them, but now no one's looking after them either. And so they're wandering around in just an awful, bedraggled state, eating rubbish. Yeah, they are, aren't they? It eating really is bad. And, yeah, yeah, awful. yeah, absolutely. But, um, mm -hmm. but yes, uh, so now we have to consider whether we, as yogis, we need to be vegans because not that there's anything wrong with milk if it's sort of really the cow is not killed and if the cow is free roaming. Mm -mm. But because of where our milk comes from, we now have to face a himsa issue, 
the ancient Indians didn't have to. We have to make that call. And it seems to me that, yet yeah, that call is that we should be vegan, not just vegetarian. Right. Yeah. Um, I have to ask you this, just to wrap it up. But, um, yeah. what, you don't have a TV. You, you're vegan. Um, what do you do for fun, apart from studying the food? Do you have any indulgences? I mean, I, I get thorough satisfaction from translating Sanskrit and reading Sanskrit texts and doing my pujas. And I, I don't, I hope that doesn't sound like a, uh, no, like a sort of, I'm, sort of, I'm supposed to say that this is <laughs> what I'm supposed to say kind of um, answer, but that just happens to be the truth of my reality. I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I go for bike rides if it's a nice day. Uh, I go for bike rides. Um, just to music? No, actually, um, I don't. No, <laughs> I no, no. Any music. I, I, I just, I'm very happy absorbing my mind in my social life is is communing with the great the great sages in the form of the of the works that they they left behind i have friends everywhere you know before corona i would travel all over the place so i had a very active life and i'd be meeting people because they invite me but i only go if they invite me to speak i won't go just on a social but yeah, obviously right. you go to someone's studio and you know then you you spend the weekend and then they'll they'll take you to see places because they want you to you know they they want you to host you so, but I, but I don't seek any of that. I, sometimes that happens. But now since that. Corona, yeah, since Corona, I've been so content staying at home. Oh, I'm sorry. I have a, a yard. I have two, <laughs> I have organic vegetables. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's I huge. have. Oh, oh, uh, so that's my, I, I should. I, that, I, that's not a yard. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's an acre land. This, I spent two, three hours a day out here. That's incredible. Wow. They and finally, who, yeah. who's your, who's your do, what inspiration do you have apart from Krishna? Do you have any inspiration or figures of inspiration, whether literary or socially or politically? Um, well, I, you know, the, uh, I mean, again, I, I, I'm probably going to sound very narrow-minded and myopic, and, and I'm actually quite happy to be, actually. Um, yeah, the sages of ancient India, yes, you know, I, I love them. I love all those texts, I, 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 Indian philosophy, all of the, you know, the different schools and, you know, Gautama, Nyaya, all of that. I enjoy immersing my mind on that. In, in terms of politics, I, I, I'm not so involved anymore. You know, I'm at the point where I, I guess I feel like the real, real deep, deep, deep level causes of our, our um, dysfunctionality in the world are spiritual. Right. And, then, and, you know, there needs to be political activism. There needs to be economic rebalancing of resources. Totally and utterly all of that. But there are, not just be, Absolutely. No, but then no. Right. Let me finish what I was saying. There needs to be people yeah. who do these different things. There also needs to be people that are, dedicate their lives to propagating spirituality. Right. Now, you know, there, there needs to be sages. There needs to be the, you know, teachers that, that go to that, that, that are operating on that level. The mm. Atman level and the Bhagavan level, and so that's something that I'm trying to, you know, that's that's a, that's a niche that I'm trying to, to 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 fill. But obviously, there's all these other wonderful ways of serving, you know, through political activism. Now is a great time for that if one has that that kind of energy and that kind of inspiration. Mm, 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 mm. I'm not sure if that answered your question. Yeah, that's good. I, that was a good question, actually. I kind of. Almost by mistake, really. <laughs> finally, the, the idea of renunciation and action, you know, that kind of plays out now. And kind of think, should we just do yoga and, you know, and do this stuff with, you know, when the Rome is burning, you know, or ought we to do something else apart from navel gazing, you know, to kind of fit people feeling bad about the contempt that they have in their own practice? Should they get, get out and be more activistic? You know, 
take a more kind of social and political uh, engagement. Yes, but I mean, if you do real yoga, you, you develop wisdom. Then if you go out into the, act, in act, into the spheres of activism, you bring wisdom with you. Otherwise, you could just be running around and creating more disturbance. So yoga's contribution, what, what is the dharma of yoga? The dharma is the quintessential defining feature of a thing. Everything has a dharma. So, you know, this, this bottle has a dharma. It, can, it holds fluid. So what is the dharma? What is distinctive about yoga that is not shared with other things? Okay, politi- political activism has its dharma that you're engaging the power structures of a society. And economic activism has its dharma. You're, you're engaging the sort of economic resources and the, and the distribution of those. And so everything has a dharma. So what's the dharma of yoga when we use the term yoga? The dharma of yoga is that, that tradition, that body of traditions, which it, it's quintessential defining feature. It's, it's, it's teaching people about their deepest innermost self, where we are all equal. And if that information becomes uh, available to, you know, widespread in human being that automatically reduces our isms, our racisms, our sexism, because yoga is teaching us that we're all essentially the same and not just teaching us that theoretically, but providing methods that we can actually begin to start to experience that. So when we tap into the deep, you know, the deeper practices of yoga, then we leave the studio, our vision has changed. We see beings differently. We begin to, we see commonality. We see this person is me. I am him. I am her. And that's the contribution of yoga. Those that are really doing yoga. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't feel like, oh, everybody else is acting and I'm, I'm doing my yoga. What's the relevance of that? And we, should, we should embrace the, the tradition and what it's saying about itself and what it claims to be offering. It's, and it's claiming to be offering the only real solution to suffering. Mm. It's taking us to this deep level place beyond suffering, beyond isms, beyond racisms and sexism, this deep level place of pure consciousness. And if we can introduce more of that into the world, then those who are yogis, who are really committed yogis, believe they're doing extremely important human welfare activity. And that's what the Buddha did. That's what Jesus Christ did. That's what these greater charts, including Krishna, including Padabi Joyce, that was really at, at core what, what they, how they understood themselves. Wow. It was, it was such a pleasure on, on a personal level, um, and, and it definitely lived up to my hopes for the, for the time with you. Uh, wonderful. Um, I'm lost for words. Um, can, we, can I just uh, ask, can you let people know where they might find you? Well, look, yes, um, I have a website and I also have some stuff there that's downloadable for free. Um, you know, we're putting material up there. We do courses and it's edwinbryant.org. And I have two links there. One is in academic videos, but you know, now we're teaching online. I'm putting all that up there. A course on the Vedanta Sutra, for example. And next semester, there'll be a course on Hindu philosophy that we're we'll putting it up there week by week. But right now we're in the middle of a four series course on the history of yoga. We just did one part, and you can register for that on my website under the other link, which is Yoga Philosophy for, for Practitioners. And yeah, you can like register there, and it's by donation or free if you don't have resources. Okay, so edwinbryant.org. And then there's a workshop schedule there, but I, that, that workshops will charge. That's the studio. But my own stuff is all free on the website. Thank you, Adam, very much for your uh, interest you. and for reaching out and for the work that you're doing. That was amazing. Thank you. See, this is what you're doing. This is what yogis are supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be, this is our dharma. Our dharma is to, you try to make this information available to whatever communities Ishwar has given us and whichever ways. And you're a radio host and that's the way you've adopted and you're reaching out and you're, 
you know, making these these teachings and uh, available to people. So, so you are actually doing what a yogi is supposed to be doing in terms of philanthropy and 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 activism and welfare work. So, I thank you for that. I thank you. Thank you.